Turn in your Bibles uh, to Nehemiah uh, chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, I'll remind you that there are a couple Bibles available for you on the back table. Last week, those of you who were here, uh, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8, at least the second half of Nehemiah chapter 8, where God's people, in response to His Word, in anticipation of their own joy that was set before them, they celebrated the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, and we talked about that seven-day celebration, which was full of, of bloody sacrifice, 191 animals in all. It was full of camping out as these booze were made by God's people all over the city and in the surrounding places for them to, to live in and to commemorate the wilderness wanderings of those who had gone before. That was chapter 8 as we continue our study of the book of Nehemiah. That feast finished on the 22nd day, and now here we are just two days later, just two days after the solemn assembly that concluded the Feast of Tabernacles. And now as we continue to look uh, at this renewal of God's people, remember that's what Nehemiah is about. Nehemiah, the book, is largely about a wall, but it's not just about a wall. It's not just about a construction project. It's about a renewal of God's people, a renewal of community. And so as we turn back to this renewal of this community, we see that the feasting of the Feast of Tabernacles has now turned to fasting. And that these visible reminders, these visible structures on top of their roofs and around the city of, of palm branches and sticks, these booths that they had been living in now have been replaced with sackcloth and with, with dirt on their heads. This morning, we want to look both at what is seen in those things as well as what is said, or more specifically, what is prayed. Because even before I read chapter 9, I want to prep you for the fact that chapter 9 is very long. It's one of the longest prayers in the Scriptures. It looks very familiar to many of the, the Psalms that we find. Psalms like uh, Psalm 105 and Psalm 106. And this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 is really a walk through history. It's a walk through Old Testament history. And, and because of that, it's a reflection upon the nature of mankind. But most importantly, it's a display of the character of God. It's a display, once again, of who God is. It's a great chapter. In one sense, it really needs no unpacking. After I'm done reading it, you're going to feel like you've heard a sermon anyway. You might want me to just sit down. But we're going to talk for a few minutes about a couple things that we can draw from Nehemiah chapter 9. And so listen as I read. Again, it's 37 verses long, and so gird up your minds as you listen. Uh, put on your listening ears as I tell my kids. 
Um, don't make that sound, though, that my kids make that. Don't do that. Um, but listen as I read. This is, uh, this is God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 9, reading verses 1 through 37. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That is about three hours. For another quarter, they made confession another three hours and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bonai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Shenanai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them for the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven and gave them the right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they, they and our fathers acted presumptuously and and they stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, and they said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies." But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end to them. Or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. 
Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. I know that was a long reading, but that was no six hours. It wasn't even three hours. Uh, but it's good for us uh, to take in God's Word at length, particularly, I think, in a passage like this, in a whole prayer like this. As we dive in this morning to this prayer of confession, I want us to briefly think about three things. There's a lot of directions we could go as we think about this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, but I want to impress upon our hearts, as my heart has been impressed this week, of three things. And the first one is this. Pray that God's will at times will bring you low. Pray that God's word, excuse me, pray that God's word will at times bring you low. Pray that God's word will at times bring you low. We have a lot of drama in our house, in the Hitchcock house. Perhaps you have drama in, in your house as well. We have a lot of blood curdling screams over paper cuts. We have a lot of flops on the floor in response to, to small shoves by siblings. And I'm not going to single anyone out as they all just smile at me. We have behavior in our house that can be considered and is considered by dad over the top. Well, this morning in our text, as we begin thinking about where the Israelites are and what they are doing next, there's this image that this text imprints on our mind, an image that in the Western world might seem at first to us to be a bit over the top. I mean, if the Israelites weren't weird enough with their shanties all over town as they camped out as families, now here they are again, assembled amongst all the traders that would have been coming in and out of the city of Jerusalem. Here they are assembled once again. They are not eating. They are wearing sackcloth, which is this material made out of camel or goat's hair. It was often a material that was used to make tents and, and sails for boats and that kind of thing. Kind of a burlap, scratchy kind of thing that you don't want to wear. Here are the Israelites dressed in sackcloth and they have dirt on their heads. We ask, what in the world is going on here? What's going on is that God's people are literally wearing their emotions. They're literally wearing their emotions. You see, in that day, in that culture, these, these tangible, visible signs gave greater expression 
to the cries that were coming out of their hearts, cries of, of mourning, cries of sorrow, cries of humility, cries of repentance. They wanted to make clear what they were experiencing on the inside. They wanted to make that clear on the outside. And what was the catalyst for this? It was the book of the law. It was the book of the law we read in the very end of chapter 8, verse 18. Day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They had just come off a steady diet of God's law in their midst, and the result is brokenness. They are humbled to the dust. They had been brought to the end of themselves. They had been it had been revealed to them once again how sinful they, they are and they felt that sting acutely. Remember, they had been here before when they first asked Ezra to bring out the book of the law in the beginning of chapter 8. They heard from it for the first time in generations and they were broken. And at that point, their brokenness was stopped because it was a day set apart to be holy. There was forgiveness coming, but now here they are again, broken, made low before the Lord. Now, I know that every part of of God's Word doesn't bring us to the same spot. It doesn't bring us to the same place. They were specifically hearing the demands of God's law upon their lives, and so therefore they were brought to a place of utter despair in the face of that law. And I recognize that we are modern Western folks. We're not in that cultural. Those aren't expressions that we give anymore to brokenness. And yet, and yet, how different sometimes our stance towards God's Word in the church can be where we look only to God's words for those principles for our success, or we look only to God's word for us to feel better. Because after all, that's what God cares about, is our feelings and how we're doing. No, God's people remind us here at the very outset in Nehemiah chapter 9 that It's not our feelings. It's God's glory. It's God's name. God's people remind us of the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of which our response to that sin ought to be. Simply put, deep, humble repentance ought to be a characteristic of the Christian life. Our cry is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I said a couple weeks ago that we ought not be surprised when God's Word sometimes makes us feel terrible. Makes us feel awful. And I'll go a step further today and say we need to feel awful at times. We need to be brought low as we see our sin, as we see who God is, because that's how God uses us. God wants us there. There's a familiar passage in 2 Chronicles 7 
verse 14, where God says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. And we often attribute that to our nation, but that's not a prayer for our nation. It's a prayer for God's people. That God's people would be made low. That God might be exalted above all. It's interesting though, that's just the very first part because as we get into the prayer of confession, as we get into the actual words that are spoken by God's people or by the representatives of God's people here in Nehemiah chapter 9, they don't begin with themselves. They don't begin with an outpouring of their failings. They begin with God. They begin with a recounting of who God is and what He has done for His people. You see, repentance is not just focused on how we feel and how we can get ourselves to feel better, but on who God is and how our sin relates to the God that we worship and the God that we have offended. And so this is the right context for us to be made low. Recounting all that God is and all that He has done. And so we're not just reminded this morning in Nehemiah 9 that God's Word needs to make us low at times. But we're also reminded of this, and this is the second thing. That God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. Have you ever heard the phrases, I've had it, I'm done, I can't take it anymore. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that phrase growing up, I'd be rich. And then it was often followed with my mom's ominous words after she said those phrases, Bert, you need to come here. <laughs> now they're part of my own experience as I feel myself coming to the end of my rope. I'm all tapped out. I, I've got nothing left. I can't take it. You know, the history of Israel, the story of the Old Testament that we just walked through as we read this confession of sin in Nehemiah 9 is a reminder of really one overarching reality about the God that we love and the God that we worship this morning. It's found in verse 17. Verse 17, look there. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You see, we are reminded in being made low that God is not like us. He is nothing like our impatience. He is nothing like our gracelessness. Israel has a history 
They have a history to recount and they have a future to look forward to because of one reason. Because of verse 17. Because God's grace is greater than all of their sin. And so as we begin to read this prayer, as we come to this, these verses where the prayer starts in verse 6, if you look at verse 6 through 15, did you notice that God was the subject of every sentence? It starts at the beginning. You are the Lord. You made the heavens and the earth. You give life to everything and sustain it. You are worshipped by the heavenly hosts. You chose Abraham. You kept your promise. You saw the sufferings of your people. You sent miraculous signs. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. You led the people. You spoke from heaven. You gave your law. You provided bread and water. You gave your people the land of promise. What a declaration of the fact that God is God. He is the creator. He is the life giver. He is the object of all worship. He is the elector. He is the covenant maker. He is the covenant keeper. He is the wonder worker. He is the deliverer. He is the savior. He is the lawgiver. He is the provider. And it's this context that is the context for humility. It's this context that makes us low because of the greatness of God. Now God doesn't need to be reminded of these things. He's not forgetful about who He is. But we need to get ourselves off of ourselves and on to the God of grace. The God whose grace is greater than our sin. And that's exactly what the people do. But then the prayer goes on in verses 16 through 31, and it exalts grace even more because it adds this element of darkness. If you go, I've never done it because I've never done it, but if you go to a diamond store and look at like a diamond bracelet, what do they do? I think they do it in the movies. They put out a black piece of felt. And they put the diamonds on the felt, you know, the bracelet. And why do they do that? Because against the black backdrop, boy, the diamonds just glisten in their whiteness. They glisten in their glory. And that's exactly what, what God's people are doing here as they pray. No longer is it just you, you, you. Now it is you, they, you, they. You, they. Let me walk through it again. They became arrogant, stiff-necked, disobedient, rebellious, and they wanted to return to slavery. But you were forgiving, you were gracious, you were compassionate, you were loving. You did not desert them even when they indulged in idolatry and blasphemy with the golden calf. But you had compassion on them, and you did not abandon them. You guided them by the pillar of cloud and fire. You instructed them by your spirit. But they disobeyed, they rebelled, they turned their backs on you, they killed your prophets. But you heard, you had compassion on them. They did evil again. You judged them, but you heard. And you had compassion on them. They became arrogant. They disobeyed. They sinned. They turned their backs on you. They would not listen. But you admonished them by your spirit. You warned them by your prophets. You did not abandon them. 
You see, this recounting here that God's people back then and, and that we who sit here today, this recounting is given that we might once again rejoice in and exult in the mercy of our God. And that we might meditate upon the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sin. But there's even something greater, and it's our last truth this morning. It's found in verses 32 through 37. And it's this we can have boldness in the midst of brokenness. We can have boldness in the midst of brokenness. You see, Israel had quite a history. It's, it's obvious. They had a messed up history. A history of failure and rebellion. One that surpasses anything that we have ever known. And yet, in all of that, after all of that, we come to verse 32. We come to this striking verse in verse 32, which is really the first request of the prayer. Everything else has been proclamation. It's been declaration. But 32, now there's a request. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. And then verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to your fathers, our fathers, to enjoy its fruit and its good gift. We are slaves. Now that's the first request of this lengthy prayer of confession. And don't you think it's a bit odd? Don't you think that it's a bit bold to cry out to God in this way? Slaves, they're slaves. See, what the Israelites are referring to is the fact that though they've been allowed to return to the land, that has been our discussion for weeks as they have been back in the city of promise and rebuilding God's holy city. As, as they have been allowed to return to the land, the temple has gone up, the walls have been completed. They are still not here in Jerusalem independently. They're in the land of promise only because the Persians have allowed them to be in the land of promise. They're still ruled by a Persian king. They're still taxed by a Persian system. They are free, but they are not totally free. And we think, okay, fair enough. You're free, but not totally free. But when you think about your history, the history that you just recounted, do you deserve to be totally free? Do you deserve anything I mean, really, what is going on here with God's people? How can they speak so boldly in the midst of such brokenness? On what ground could they possibly make an appeal like this to God? 
The answer is because of the covenant. The answer is because of the promises of God. You see, God has bound Himself to these people by way of covenant. He chose them the least of all peoples that He might show through them His power and His glory. Yes, they did nothing to deserve it, but God bound Himself to them. They are His people. He has made promises and they appeal to those promises. They appeal to that covenant. And so there is the ground for such a request. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the God that they worship. All that they have recounted of the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God is the certainty that He would bring to pass what He said He would bring to pass. And so what does this have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with us because we all have our own histories. We all can recount using that same formula that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 9. I did blank, but you, O Lord, responded in this way. I tried to do blank, but you, O Lord, just wouldn't allow it. I didn't do blank, and yet you, O Lord, intervened. Take a moment and just think about those histories. Think about your history. Think about your story and your recounting. Let God's Word and let God's Spirit bring it to mind this morning. Let Him bring you low. Maybe you look back on your life and you think that you have a pretty good track record, that you are a pretty good person. And yet when you really think about how you've treated people, when you really think about how you've not given priority to the God who is declared here in the Scriptures, you've all but ignored Him in your past, You've got to confess that you too are a mess. That you too are a failure in God's sight. And yet the promise here this morning is that God has extended His covenant. That God has extended the promises that He made to this people beyond them. He's ushered in a new covenant. He's brought about a visible Savior. He sent His Son, His Son Jesus. And because of Jesus, we have not just access to God, but we can have this same boldness in our brokenness. As we appeal not to our histories, not to our sordid pasts, but as we look to Him. As we look to the great High Priest, the One who is made weak like we are, but who has given us confidence to the throne of grace. You see, Israel had a future. 
They had a history only because of the promise of God. And you have a history and you have a future only in the promise of Jesus. So that's really the message for us this morning. No matter what you've done, no matter how you have failed, let His grace, let His mercy, the mercy and grace shown in Jesus wash over you again. You see, I do pray that we would be made low. I pray that as a people, that we would be made low because that's exactly the kind of thing that that fuels revival. But I also pray that we would marvel at grace. That grace that is greater than our sin. That that would feed the brokenness of our hearts and that that would feed the brokenness of our world. And that that might be our message. And that might be our joy as we live, as we serve a God who is slow to anger, steadfast and abounding in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this wonderful declaration this morning from your word about who you are, about the God that we worship. Father, bring us to that place. Bring us to that place of lowness, of humility before your greatness. But don't leave us there. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with the confidence that is ours in Jesus. Father, there may be those here who have never understood, who have never apprehended the kindness that You have shown in Jesus our Lord. Oh, Father, would they do that today? Would Your Spirit bring them to the end of themselves and to the acknowledgement of Your mercy, of Your steadfast love shown to a people undeserving? Oh, God of grace, we thank You for Your steadfast love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.